This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at portlanddistro.com. Welcome to Everything Went Black. This is Darkness Weaves, the collaborative podcast subseries that I'm doing with Carl Hikara of Soul Knox. We have been working through Carl Edward Wagner's In a Lonely Place collection, and this is the conclusion of our exploration of this great work. We are going to continue with more of Wagner's material as time goes on, but this is kind of a milestone episode because we have completed our analysis of Wagner's collection of horror and weird fiction stories in a lonely place. So glad we did it. Looking forward to more. I'd like to shout out the other members of the Horsemen of the Podcasting Apocalypse. Kicking things off, we have Brandon Legion's Horror Wolf 666. Next up, Into the Necrosphere by Jackie Smith. Wednesday, of course, is Everything Went Black for the midweek. I come back on Thursdays with Necromaniacs, a podcast dedicated to horror that I co-host with my friends Mike Scandato and Jeff Kashid. Friday, Mike's brother, John Draper, brings us Spitball Media. Saturday is a day off. Sunday, Carl deploys Soul Knox for all things macabre, esoteric, and weird. And our newest member, our newest horseman, Cheyenne of the band Trivax, lurking in the fringes, in the margins, in those moments between the moments, he comes at us with Iblis manifestations. If you enjoy the show, please share it. Please tell your friends about it. Give us a review on iTunes. But if you feel compelled, you can support the podcast by joining our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can support the show. You get access to bonus material. For $5 a month, you get access to all the bonus material, plus early access to the regular stream episodes. And for $25 a month, you can become a sponsor. It didn't help matters that his conscience plagued him. He had broken a sacred trust. He should never have made use of post-hypnotic suggestion last night to persuade Lisette to return for a further session. It went against all principles. 
but there had been no other course. The girl was adamant, and he had to know. He was so close to establishing final proof, if only for one final session of regressive hypnosis. Afterward, he had spent a sleepless night, too excited for rest, at work in his study, trying to reconcile the conflicting elements of Lizette's released memories with the historical data his research had so far compiled. By morning, he had been able to pull together just enough facts to deepen the mystery. So this is kind of a milestone. We made it through in a lonely place, the Carlywood Wagner uh, short story collection that was recently uh, published by uh, Valancourt Books. And that's, uh, it seems like we, like you were saying before we started, it seems like we just started, but it's been like an eight month trek, you know, across time, getting all this stuff in, you know? It's kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's just how fast this year has gone by. Like it literally feels like it went from April to October and like, even though like it actually wasn't that fast because I had a lot of like annoying stuff to deal with during the summer and everything. But at the same time, it just feels like <laughs> it's weird. You know, you know, how time is it's weird. This whole year has been very strange, very, very interesting for me. Just, um, I don't know. Like I moved, I got a new job. I got a girlfriend. I got some just insane personal stuff sorted out. And like, I don't know. Life has just been very interesting. And, um, it's I, I'm looking forward to 2024 actually for the first time in years because uh, for like the last three years it's just been like this dark void of nothingness in front of me. So now it's like <laughs> I feel like there's stuff to look forward to. You know, tombs we got we're working on a new record. You know, there's like some possibilities, some pouring things we're looking at for next year. And yeah, this year was interesting, man. It was just uh, I know it's only. It's only October. I'm getting all reflective on the year. Or maybe I should save this these thoughts until December. You know, <laughs> I I kind of start getting like that as soon as Halloween's over. I'm usually pretty like once we hit November into to December, I, I get pretty reflective. But it kind of starts even now. I mean, once once that autumn starts hitting, I get kind of reflective. But particularly once we get into, I try to enjoy autumn as much as possible because particularly here in Colorado, it's very very short. We pretty much only got like three weeks of like the fall eaves and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So it's like, you got to enjoy it while it lasts. And then, then we get plunged into winter, which, you know, I like winter. So it's okay. I like but, winter but too. I definitely get kind of like reflective at the end of the year for whatever reason, you know? I mean, I feel like winter is like the mightiest season of the year in a lot of ways, because it just like everything's dead and, and just you're, you're at that zero point. And, you know, it's, it's like, you know, Kernunos going into the underworld, you know, you're, you're just at the begin at the end in the beginning and, uh, fall and, you know, autumn is like the decline, you know, and, and, um, it's kind of like bittersweet to reflect on like the summer, you know, wa the waning of the summer. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just get very emotional and reflective during this time of year. And I'm just, you know, happy that there's something to enjoy this year instead of the last couple of years have just been like bleak and horrible, you know? Yeah, definitely. I do find this time of year to be kind of uh, inspiring, though, like artistically, like I generally tend to get a lot more done in the winter with music and with art and stuff like that for whatever, you know. So uh, maybe it's part of that reflective part of it, like kind of turning inwards. So sometimes it makes it it's a little bit more easier to create art. You know what I mean? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so let's talk about um, this week's episode, the final story in a, in a lonely place. And of course, uh, referring to beyond any measure. And uh, this story originally appeared in uh, Whispers 15 through 16 as a, it's a, cause this is a longer piece. It's a more of a novella. And um, it appeared in two issues of Whispers. And that's um, a lot of Wagner's material appeared in that publication. And that was uh, brought to us by uh, Stuart David Schiff. And um, aside from In a Lonely Place, I think this this story appears in a uh, Whispers collection, a hardcover that came out, which I do not have in my collection, but is available out there somewhere in the ether. Yeah, I need to try to track that down. Yeah, and only in the back, he says, Beyond Any Measure, written between July 1980 and July 1981, again explores relationships of eroticism and horror. And again, the title is from Richard O'Brien's The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Erotic nightmares beyond any measure and central daydreams to treasure forever. The settings are contemporary London streets and shops. And I'm indebted to author editor Michael Perry for the tour of Covenant Garden, a Covent Garden on the night of its reopening as a trendy shopping mall. Beyond Any Measure is written as an intended screenplay, and the story contains cinematic references, references and homages and beyond, homages counting, beyond counting. Fans of the Avengers television series, television series, will be quick to recognize the play on the infamous "A Touch of Brimstone" episode, shown only on uh, later reruns on American TV. So that's what he says about that. About the story. You ever, you ever watch the Avengers? I, I, I'm not. I'm not well versed in the Avengers, actually. No, I don't know the Avengers, but I know what which one he's talking about because um, I think it has um, uh, what's his name that the the lady who's in um, in uh, uh, Her Majesty's Secret Service, um, in, dressed up like a like in like a devil costume, kind of like some type, it almost kind of looked like an S and M costume in a way. I remember seeing pictures of that, but I've never seen the episode. Yeah, I saw like stills because after you know reading the reading some of the background on this story, I looked it up online and there were some stills. And I mean, hey, the Avengers looks like a fun show. You know, I just never really checked it out. I don't know how big it was in the States. You know, it's from like the 70s, I think, or something like that. Yeah, it was the 60s and then the 70s because you had, um, I wish I could remember her name. Um, <laughs> she, she was in, she was in Honor Magic Secret Service, but she was in as, uh, as like James Bond's like great love, you know, but. Uh, oh, yeah. Yes. So that was in the 60s. That was 68. So I think the the show was pretty popular there. And she left, and then they brought another another lady in, I think, for the new Avengers in the 70s. But yeah, never really got into Avengers. I mean, I was into into James Bond, but not really the Avengers, you know. Right. But so let's get a little bit into the narrative of this story. Um, in the beginning with this, we meet uh, Lisette Sirig, Danielle Borland, and. Dr. Magnus Ingmar, which is a pretty excellent name. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we're, we're in like a party of some, I think it's like the opening. Uh, Danielle is an artist. We're at an, an opening for her, for our art show, basically. And um, we start off with, with, with um, Lizette um, describing a dream that she had to, to Dr. Magnus. Yeah, and the uh, the name of uh, that art, the art showing is called "Such Things May Be." Um, that's you know from the story. Uh, we get a feel for uh, some of these people. They're they're definitely like these kind of uh, intellectual, uh, maybe decadent, like artsy types. That were these are the kinds of circles that we're running in in this story. 
Yeah, um, this is, this yeah. Is Wa- Wagner covers Wagner covers like a pretty good cross section of uh, of of cultures in in this collection. You know, we got like some more rural people. We got these artsy types. You know, yeah. Like this story later on will be at a party where you got like you know guys kind of I think kind of I guess in a way modeled after like Adam Ant or something like that. You know, like you got it's kind of tapping into the the punk scene and the kind of post punk. You know almost like goth world in this in story in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'd like to mention that Lizette and Danielle are both Americans living in London, uh, you know, studying. Uh, one of them was uh, sketching the other as a model, and uh, she used some sort of American slang curse word or something, and they realized that they were um, both Americans, and that's how they sort of hit it off and became more than just friends as we learned later on in the story <laughs> yeah yeah they're, they're definitely they're, they're roommates in there they're yeah they're more than just friends and uh um danielle d- did a drawing of of lisette that's in this art art showing which will be an important part of the story as well but uh yeah i mean as as this moment where i really focused on her talking to dr magnus who i guess is this kind of psychologist guy who's invested in kind of i guess the paranormal side of psychology like he's he's really into past life um stuff like that trying to find the the proof for past life you know memories and and all stuff he's like kind of like writing books about it you know he's one of those kind of guys which was pretty pretty popular type of thing in the 70s you know Maybe it's because it was in the 70s, but he didn't out and out state this, but it feels like he might be one of these kind of like uh, Jungian uh, red book kind of guys, you know what I mean? Like maybe just from the era that we're talking about, but he didn't, he didn't really talk about the collective consciousness or anything like that. But I think that that the red book might be on his uh, his uh, collection of books, it might be on his bookshelf somewhere, maybe. Yeah, he definitely seems kind of part of that that era of 70s, like psychology, um, where it's it's definitely connected to kind of the occult and and the paranormal and you know probably invested with some Jungian stuff as well but he's seems to be particularly focused in on past life regression and trying to find a I guess like a proof of past lives is a big part of what he's interested in and so he's really interested in Lisette's story because she's describing this dream that she had that she started having when she came to to England really she had it like early on in her life and then it started recurring basically almost every night in when she came to England and it's kind of like her in like a kind of nightgown of sorts like in an older time period basically and like she's like one of the dreams we she's like wandering through the cemetery and stuff like that and it seems like there's a type of horrific feeling to it yeah yeah Highgate Cemetery um which uh, you know shows up in 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 other you know horror stories you know connected to vampires and things like that. Yeah, yeah, the Highgate vampire. Yeah. The some some uh, thoughts on uh, on Doctor Ingmar is that in some ways he almost is like one of these kind of Lovecraftian um, scientists who is you know um, you know kind of like Herbert West or something like that, where he has this this like obsession. With it, he has these objectives which he masks in altruism in some ways. Like, because originally he wants to help Lizette, or he approaches her under the guise of being helpful with her nightmares. But we learn that 
his objectives are not as altruistic that he actually has all these research goals and you know he wants to use her as almost like a test subject yeah exactly and um yeah we kind of come to find that out more as it goes on that you know he's kind of because because her her dreams like they're able to he, he does like hypnosis and kind of past life regression and they are able to figure out a name for this past life um which is what was it elizabeth um forget the forget the last name um, i got it written down here it's uh elizabeth beresford beresford, Beres yeah. beresford. yeah elizabeth and beresford so he's getting you know he's getting excited because it's like you know, if you can use this name and try to track track her down, track down this this name and see if it's a real person, you know, like all that kind of stuff. See if there's any any relationship to if it's he's you know he's trying to figure out if 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 we are reborn, if it's in the same family or if it's kind of random, you know. So these are the type of things that he's he's got going on, kind of concurrently with this, and partially because of this, as she's one going down the street. He does mention she walks by the Equinox bookshop, which was a place that, you know, Crowley, I mean, the, the name of the Crowley's paper, the Equinox, was named after the bookstore. You know, it's like a pretty famous one. I think it closed, but there's this guy standing in front of it who's um like kind of, he kind of sounds like he's, uh, I don't know, he's like dressed all in black and he's got like a kind of like a medallion with like the star on it and he's like, Kind of looks like almost a little bit like he walked out of like the 17th century, but it could be like an affectation from like kind of some kind of like punk, punk goth guy type of thing. You know what I mean? Like, well, there's three thoughts about this here. There's um, Equinox Bookstore was a, was a, obviously a real place, uh, and it was Jimmy Page owned it from Led Zeppelin. Yeah, the Equinox Bookstore, and um, that was like you know his 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 publishing house and bookstore where he stocked a lot of occult stuff and Crowleyan materials, things like that. Um, and also, all right, the, the image that I got of this guy who we learned later on, his name is uh, like Mephisto or something like that. Uh, yeah, he, go, he goes by <laughs> Mephisto. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen, all right, <laughs> Hippocampus Press, like the book the book publishing company? You know, they yeah. publish a lot of weird fiction. They publish like that two volume set of Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard letters. And they did like an Arthur Mackin letters collection. And, and all the times that I've seen them at conventions, like for example, at ne Necronomicon, they were there and they were at the um, Nightlands Fest for Cadabra Records. There's the same guy. And I don't know, I think, I think the founder of, of Hippocampus is a woman. So I don't think he's the founder, but somehow he's connected to that publishing company. And he, what came to mind was this guy originally when I, when I read this story the first time through, I'm like, Oh, this is that dude from hippocampus records. Cause he's like, every time I've seen him, he's like dressed in black. He's got like some medallion on. He's like, like a black, like dress shirt, black blazer medallion, like, like nail polish, subtle makeup. And he's like an older guy. Like he's probably in his like early sixties and just a fucking cool looking dude. who just looks sort of like, he probably saw the bad seeds like back in the day and, you know, just like one of these guys who knows about stuff. And yeah, this is that's kind of, Mephisto that's kind of, strike. 
that kind of guy, you know? Yeah, exactly. I was kind of seeing in my head, like some type of guy that you would have seen at like a bad seed show. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like I, I was kind of imagining, I can't remember what band it was. There was this guy, I was kind of had, had in my head, like this a guy from like one of those old, I've seen pictures of like from one of those old goth bands, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like he kind of That's totally sweet. strikes me like that kind of guy. Yeah, you know, and, and it's, uh, you know, you got to remember the time that um, that Wagner wrote this story was probably around that time of like the birthday party and like the bad seeds and things like that, too. Well, it was, yeah, because it was 1980s, so. Yeah, yeah, so and, it was contemporary, you know. Yeah, and he actually went to London, it sounds like, and so it's based off of his trip there in that time period. So he probably saw guys like this walking around, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and he, this guy, like, kind of sees her in the reflection and then she kind of notices him and then he turns around and just like stares at her, you know, like he's like, he thinks that she's someone else. He kind of tries to accost her. She just thinks she like, she's telling this to Danielle and Daniel, and she just thinks that this guy was trying to hit on her or something. But then Danielle's like, Oh, I know that guy. That's how we find out his name is Mephisto. Like he's around like connected to these like occultists and stuff like that. And, and connected to um, this lady, uh, what's her name? Beth, um, Beth Garrington. Yeah, who's like this, like kind of like rich, you know, kind of socialite, you know. So, so Dan Daniel kind of knows knows of him, you know, seen him around. So, also the the image that comes to mind though too with this is like you know how like around the Church of Satan there was all these celebrities that were you know joining the Church of Satan and uh, Beth Garrington strikes me as one of these like celebrities who is is a you know, fascinated with the dark side and like, you know, the occult and that kind of thing. So she's like, you know, one of these rich, well-to-do occultists. Yeah. Well, at least that's, that's what we're given right now. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> what we're led, we're led to believe at this stage of the, of the game. Yes. Yeah. But, um, and then we also, then, um, they get an invitation to go to, she has some type of masquerade party, this Beth Garrington. And they're invited because uh, I guess the story they're told is she saw Daniel's art and and saw and particularly bought the drawing of Lizette and wants both of them to come to the party to meet them basically you know so so that's so now they're invited to the soiree in uh and I'm not sure in what part of London it is but somewhere in London you know like this big yeah, some hip, house some hip part of London and uh party they spent a lot of time uh describing the partiers and the people there and the party itself and uh it's really you know we see all this decadence and you know people in bondage gear and there's a guy dressed like a barbarian who you know maybe it's kane you know who knows <laughs> yeah, he's like lead, he's like leading another as like half naked lady around with like a chain and yeah well I say that half jokingly because there are some Kane stories that take place in the modern times. Cause he's a, remember Kane's immortal. And for those of you out there who aren't familiar with Kane, don't worry. We're going to be getting into those stories after we're finished with this. And it's a whole universe of cool, dark fantasy associated with this immortal swordsman that we're talking about. And I wouldn't be surprised if it is Kane, you know, <laughs> like, because, you know, Wagner, probably could be like yeah let's put canes at this party too but i'm not gonna like put a lantern on it we're just gonna show this barbarian looking guy that all yeah. the women are fawning over you know i want to believe that it was kane 
by the description yeah. he gave. I mean, he didn't really comment on the color of his hair or anything, but you never know. I mean, he could have dyed his hair too. It's, a, it's the 80s. Yeah, but he definitely sound yeah, it could be Kane, which is a cool idea. And and the party is a pretty, the, the party's pretty wild. Like, it sounds like, um, you know, it sounds like a real type of party you can imagine. And I mean, I know that people that partied people hard, in the, hard in the late, late 70s and 80s, 80s, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? So. Yeah, there's like heaps of cocaine and drinks and uh, people in bondage gear and, you know. There's like a there's like a band playing, I guess it's supposed to be some type of like new wave, you know, popular new wave type of band. And they run into this guy who kind of sounds like he's supposed to be like, I don't know, like Billy Idol or Adam Ant or somebody like that, you know. Uh, Eddie Teeth. That was Eddie Teeth, yeah. 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 And it is and, the needle. Yeah, so that, that he kind of strikes me like the way he's described is kind of like his version of one of those kind of guys like Billy Idol or Adam Ant or, you know, kind of like one of those guys that came from the punk scene, but it's kind of like a pop band now, you know? <laughs> Were you ever a fan of uh, of any of his, you know, any Billy Idol work at all? Oh, yeah, I like, I like Billy Idol, Idol yeah. stuff a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I um, it's funny because I actually like his solo material more than I like Generation X. Like, I was, I don't think Generation X is really that great, but I like his, like, stuff he did with Steve Stevens and um, those, like, first couple records, like... uh eyes without a face like those tracks you know Blue oh, yeah, Highway. i think i think those are classic songs man great great songs yeah i, I love eyes without a face and it's even better because it's about an awesome movie too you know and yeah it just it actually kind of captures the feeling of that movie too so it's like uh, you know and even some of his i actually a few months ago i was actually checking out some of his later albums too and some of them aren't that bad he kind of goes down kind of tries to go back to being more punk but it, some of it some of the songs actually aren't too bad you know but definitely the first two albums in the 80s I and mean, those things are classic so uh eddie teeth tries to pick up uh these two ladies lizette and um and danielle but and danielle kind of gets led a little bit into his uh into his grip you know he's got her he's got his grips a little bit on danielle and um you get the sense that uh lizette starts going harder with the drugs uh when Lizette and uh, when uh Danielle breaks off with um with Eddie Teeth and they kind of disappear together. Yeah, she's like cuz there there's like a room upstairs it's like a a library or something where there's these like maids in like sexy maid costumes like laying out like lines of coke on like mirrors like for whoever wants it. You know what I mean? Like and whenever people take lines and they put out more, you know. <laughs> it's it's a pretty crazy part. I mean, like I said, but from what I've heard from people I know who's like involved with that kind of stuff back then, that, that was what parties was like back in the seventies and eighties. <laughs> people were wild back then. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's definitely not my uh, my scene, obviously. No. <laughs> yeah, but um, so we bump into Mephisto. He shows up, of course, miraculously. He shows up at the party and he gives uh, Lizette some special champagne. Mm -hmm. You know, and, which um, we're yeah, go ahead. Sorry. And she and he's like telling her about how excited Beth is to to meet her. You know what I mean? And and of course Beth's going to make uh a, her like appearance at the end, right? And yeah, and he's like, yeah, he gives her some special champagne, and then she starts feeling all kind of fuzzy as as it goes on. But I really liked the description of when Beth makes her kind of grand appearance, like down the stairs. Yeah, and she's like dressed up as Lilith, you know. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, 
Yeah, I'm sure a lot of you guys know who Lilith is. It was, uh, you know, let, um, depending on what, let's let's pick the Hebrew um, definition. It was uh, Adam's first wife who was cast out of heaven for wanting to be on top during sex. Can you imagine that? Being yeah. cast out of heaven for that. Or the, <laughs> I'm not, not heaven, but out of the Garden of Eden because of that. Yeah, it tells you all you need to know about the Garden of Eden. It's not, yeah, it's the Garden crazy. of Eden. <laughs> yeah, then uh, you know, and of course, um, you know, the, the legend she's involved with becoming, you know, the first of the vampires, and you know, yeah, suck, suck, suck you by, and she gives birth to demons with the stolen semen from men, and they're when they have wet dreams and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, it's a great story. Great. Story. Yeah. I I found a book um on Lilith actually at this um this place called Namaste in New York City on 14th street. I was wandering through there with my girlfriend one day and uh, which, I mean, there's several books, but I was like, it was funny cause I was with her and I thought it was interesting. I was like, Oh, check this out. Did you get this book? So she bought it. Which, which, uh, which book about Lilith? I've been trying to visualize the title cause I, I didn't actually keep the book cause I have a couple others on, on Lilith, but I gave, I told, I convinced her to buy it cause she's interested in that sort of stuff as well. Right. Cause I remember, I, I remember I recommended you the, the Canticles of Lilith by Frisvald yeah. and that's the one I have, but that's not the one that, that we found at the um, at the Namaste bookstore. Yeah, and I picked up um, a recent book called The Rights of Lilith by Austin F. Mason, which is pretty cool. So, you know, I used to have this book called Libra Lilith. And Donald Tyson, but I ended up selling it because it, it, it was okay. It wasn't my, it wasn't my favorite book in the world, but, uh, you know, I needed the money. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I think the Canticles, Canticles of Lilith book is like a really great about Lilith, so anybody wants to learn more about her you can pick that up <laughs> so up until this point in the book in the story you know the first time going through the reading of this uh it felt like uh this was like a doppelganger story where it had to do with like mistaken identity or you know there's someone who looks like someone else out there or but the, the at this point moving forward is when things really start shifting and yeah. we realize that this is like a you know a not not that type of story. It's a totally different type of story. Yeah, it kind of has a little bit of that going on. You know, when 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 Lizette sees Beth dressed up as Lilith, like in her you know corset and high heels and whatever, and her mask, she looks in her eyes and then she feels woozy and passes out. Then the next stage of things, like she goes to. Um, do uh, work, you know, something with the doctor Magnus, and he convinces he kind of uses his the hypnotic things to push her to do a second round of of stuff because he's like feels like he's kind of on the verge of discovering like what's going on basically, you know what I mean? And and so while that's going on, Danielle comes home, and this is when the story takes a turn and we actually start figuring out what's going on. Kind of is that. Danielle comes in. She's taking a shower because earlier they had a sex scene in the shower. So we know, you know, they take a lot of showers together. These two, it seems like. Yeah. So she takes a shower and then she thinks that Lizette got home and is getting in a shower with her. It's getting kind of sexy. She, she turns around. She's like, wait a minute, you're not. And then the next thing you know, like, you know, Dan Lizette finally is coming back from the second reading, you know, um, hypnosis thing and finds Danielle's body in the tub, like, and I guess she's like been drained of blood. And they're saying that like the, it almost seems like her wrists are slashed and stuff. But but they're saying that her she her body was drained of blood before 
the wrists were slashed and everything. So they like very like they're saying like the the it says in that that the police see that there was like these two my like almost like marks on their throat that the throat that the stuff was supposed slashed you know seemed to be covering up so at that point you're kind of like okay <laughs> i was kind of like what's going on like obviously there's a vampire thing going on here right yeah. you know and there is a little bit of foreshadowing of that earlier in the one of the dreams because in one of the dreams like her mouth is filled with blood and you know and she's walking through the graveyard and uh so there's like a little bit of that foreshadowing that happens in the story earlier yeah so now so now like um a few things happen like but like she has to spend time with the cops and then she ends up um this that best lady calls her tells her, like oh i heard what happened like it's so horrible like come and stay at the ho- at the house you know all this stuff so so she goes out Lizette goes off to stay at stay at this big mansion and she just goes falls asleep and then the doctor then we're back to the doctor because they couldn't get a hold of him that whole night because you know he was her alibi and she was his alibi you know what i mean like because they kind yeah. of they're like under suspicion she so this one we finally start piecing together what's going on somewhat like he's been looking into the history of the elizabeth um whatever her last name was i don't i can't remember um bearforth um, bear, bear yeah so this was a real person who died i think in what was it like 19 1900 or something but then he figures out that supposedly she like was buried prematurely and she came out of the, they found her wandering through highgate cemetery and then her husband died a year later and then she started throwing all these wild parties and all those kinds of stuff and then she'll like disappear and then you know 20 years later like her a daughter comes out you know what i mean like so already i was kind of like okay i see what's going on you know she's i was like uh, you know i kind of by this point i was like okay i think i know what's going on you know but it's like this one so we're kind of learning all, all this stuff in and she also had it's kind of like yeah like kind of change like after her husband died where she's like throwing all these wild parties and you know trucking with satanists and all those kinds of stuff you know what i mean and uh so he so he, we're kind of with him because he, he's doing all this research about this stuff and he was trying to go get a hold of lizette to let her know and and i think that um he's kind of guessing what's going on and he gets there and the cops are there and they, he, he finds out that she went off to Beth's house and then he has to try to convince the cops that, that there was this kind of like satanic orgy at this place and she's in danger and all this stuff, you know, yeah. so that they'll get there. Well, the interesting thing about Magnus uh, is that I, originally when you start reading this story, you're thinking that he might be more involved in the actual plot. You know what I mean? Like he might, you know, he might be more involved in some of the things that are happening. But it turns out that he's almost more of just like an exposition guy. You know, he's like one of those like non non player uh, characters where he's there to to give background. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of his his um as an element in the um in the story. He's there to give background information. You know, he's not pushing the plot forward necessarily. You know? No, yeah, he's he's kind of like a bearing witness to the plot as it goes forward in a way, yeah. like. Which kind of does make him a lot like some of the Lovecraftian heroes, where they're not actually really. Yeah. Sometimes in a lot of Lovecraft stories, they 
they're the only way that they're actually engaging with the plot is really in unveiling of of what's going on like they're not really changing what's going on but they're just kind of unveiling the plot like think of call of cthulhu yeah that's that story is entirely just like one guy like putting all the pieces together and figuring out what's going on but there's no like relationship to like an idea of like he's not affecting the plot so in a way like magnus really is like this kind of um this kind of uh, yeah he's he's the one who's unveiling what's happening really you know in a lot of ways giving us the backstory yeah i, I just want to call that out just because the um you know i i love that carl edward wagner is so like his his lovecraftian influence isn't as as uh, pronounced you know what i mean as some other writers but there is definitely the way that he approaches storytelling i think is similar to lovecraft in a lot of ways even though there's not necessarily a connection to that mythos, you know, in some ways his, his connection is almost more to Robert Chambers mythos than it is Lovecraft. Yeah. Well, and one thing to us thinking of Magnus, do you think that the name is a, a nod to MR James count Magnus? That's kind of yeah. what I thought. So yeah, like, and I think it might be too, too a misdirection on his part because anybody who knows those sto that story and he sees the name Magnus and that's what you're thinking of might be led to think that he's that, that, he's like the nefarious player in the plot right. but yeah so i think i think it's a little bit of misdirection on on wagner's part which did work because i did think that he was like this nefarious yeah. character at first you know <laughs> this guy's definitely a bad guy <laughs> it's like it, yeah the first time i read it i thought he was going to be the one involved in this plot that it yeah. had more to do with like past lives i mean it kind of still does but the, uh, the the element that we're coming up on right now definitely the first time i read the story came came like as as a surprise to me you know yeah because it's kind of what happens is we get beth is at the house and she slept a while she gets up she wants to go say hi to her hostess who she hasn't really met you know she's fainted at her feet the one time right and yeah. she goes and pushes open the door and this lit the woman arises in front of her is literally basically her it looks exactly like her and and then that which is beth and she's saying like who is this woman who looks like me and she's like very confused and fascinated by the whole thing you know what i mean yeah definitely and um this is when it gets interesting like wagner always kind of like throws a good curve when it, even when he's writing about um you know kind of like traditional you know characters like vampires and stuff you know what i mean yeah really like you know basically like we find out that that beth is so he's basing it in a way of traditional lore a lot of times a vampire is is a non-human entity who takes over a, a body on the verge of death you know yeah. so basically he's taking on that type of element of of uh vampiric folklore and so essentially the reason why Elizabeth rose out of the grave was because this non-human vampire entity took over her body basically and pushed her soul out of the body. So, so basically what happened is that Lizette is the reincarnated of the human soul of Elizabeth, but the body of Elizabeth has gone on incarnated by this light, like vampiric spirit essentially, which, and 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 then it does tie into the traditional doppelganger, which of course um, Danielle mentions the 
uh, Edgar Allan Poe story earlier in it of William Wilson, which he where he finds his doppelganger and kills it, and then he dies. So yeah. that's kind of what's going on in this as well is that the doppelgangers found each other in a way, and it's ruined for both of them. You know, because that's traditionally what it means to see your doppelganger. You know. There was also a, a version of vampiric folklore where or the original vampires were like fallen angels that had possessed the bodies of the recent dead. Yeah. I remember reading yeah. about that. Yeah. And I think that's did, you, of, did you ever come across that? Yeah, definitely. I think that's kind of what Wagner's drawing upon. I think it is this kind of unhuman entity, a fallen angel or something like this that has taken her body. You know what I mean? That's kind of what's going on with this, I think, you know. What's interesting too is when they talk about the two, like the vampire not having a soul at all. You know what I mean? How it's just, it literally is like reanimated by this other entity and the transference of the actual consciousness of, a, of the soul. You know, how, if you believe that that, you have to make that jump of faith that it's like a, you know, an, an empirical fact that the soul exists and that gets transferred down through, you know, the eons or whatever. And, Hence Magnus's research interest in Lisette that she's having all these past life regression experiences. And I just thought it was like a very interesting way of tying in vampires and past lives and, and all that sort of stuff. And it turned, you know, and liches too, actually. We have a lich again in this story. Yeah, because she's like a vampiric lich, basically. So like it's interesting that the, yeah, when she feasts on the blood of Lisette it kills her basically, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I, I'm not hundred percent sure on the why of that, but I think it's just the logic of the story that, that when the doppelganger, when the soul is like, you know, the reincarnated soul, you know, and, and that one connect, it means death for both of them basically, you know? So it's like, so like they, they brushed in and they see Lisette, you know, dead, like bled out and on top of her is like a, or no, doesn't Lisette drink, like, like yeah. bite into her throat or something? I forget. Yeah, because her, her plot was to turn Lisette into a vampire and so that she would, you know, live on forever with her. And that's, yeah. that's what, it's the yeah. other that, that that element happens in the story. Right. Like one, but they come in and one of them is like, is like, like the Elizabeth's body is like desiccated on top of Lisette, who's like bled out basically, right? So. Very interesting and uh, very good way of ending being the final story in this uh, collection is like ends on a really high note. There's like a very strong story in, in the in the eight stories that are included in this. Yeah, I, I feel like this story is 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 actually one of the strongest in the collection because I feel like the the effect of the the whole thing I think is culminating with the, the end of the story. And I literally didn't know where the story was going really. And then it all comes together really nicely at the end. You know what I mean? Like it's very much in the tradition of the idea of Poe with like the story going to the final culminating effect of, uh, you know what I mean? Like everything has to, to like build to this culminating end. And I feel like this story out of this collection is one of the best in that, you know? Yeah. And apparently this story was written, um, it, it wasn't like a story that he'd written and tried to sell. It was a story that was uh, contracted by uh, by Whispers. Like they approached him about providing a story for one of, you know, as a, for a forthcoming issue. 
and um you know wagner is a famous famously uh not very prolific in some ways like he was someone who wrote very slowly and you know took his time and missed deadlines and all this sort of stuff so he did not have like a backlog of material and you know short stories he just he would write them as needed apparently so this was like written specifically for whispers uh magazine yeah and they, yeah like it says it took him a year to write this and you know obviously put a lot of thought into the story and the way to build everything and I just think it, there's a lot of things about the story that I like. I like that fact. I like the feeling of the story. It has a very kind of haunting feeling to it. I like the setting. I like it being set in London in that time period because it's like a period that I'm like really interested in because of the, all the music. You know, it's like one of the greatest periods of music ever. You know what I mean? Of music coming out of Britain and the late 70s, early 80s is probably one of the greatest, strongest periods of music like like out of any time you know what i mean so and he kind of grounds it in that period you know in a lot of ways you know yeah no that's i feel the same way about it some of the best bands ever came out in the 70s and the 80s you know zeppelin sabbath you know deep purple you know all that sort of stuff yeah and then all the the punk and post-punk bands that are more particularly at the time period this is set you know like it's just that it's such a strong period of, of time and I, I think it just captures that feeling very well you know and it has a very eerie feeling and, and like, because you don't really know where it's going, like, you know, until I didn't really figure out what was going on until the, um, even like, even like, like when, when Danielle was killed, I still wasn't like quite sure what the fuck was going on, you know, like. Yeah, me too. Yeah. The first <laughs> time I read this, I had no idea what was going on, really. I was just like, oh, there's a murder now. Like somehow I figured Magnus was, would have been involved. I, I don't know. You know, then slowly the story gets uh you know unravels yeah once he kind of talks about her disappearing and coming back and stuff i was like oh, okay i know she's pulling the uh the old uh kerwin method you know what i mean <laughs> like those those like are really like particularly kerwin stayed too long that was his mistake it was like the other sorcerers who disappeared for a while and came back as their sons you know <laughs> so now that we're done with this what what are what are some of your favorite stories in this volume? You know, what I mean, I'm not saying to rank the entire eight tales, but what what are some of the your all? What what do you see yourself going back to and rereading over the next year or so? Um, I would say definitely uh, sticks and uh, in the pines and beyond the story beyond any measure, and probably also uh, river and ice dreaming. Those are probably my my favorite. I mean, I do I like the other stories. I do like double lot swift and stuff but those are the stories that i guess i was i kind of felt most like connected to if that makes sense yeah pop for me is definitely sticks like sticks is probably my favorite all edward wagner story period um you know even more than the Kane stuff he wrote that that story really reaches me yeah me too. Uh, in, in the pines for sure i have a 220 swift just because of the uh the arthur mackin like kind of um roundup at the end you know yeah. i think that's really, really interesting and i'm always good for like a you know a nice uh you know underground uh monster story you know <laughs> yeah that, that's always something i'm into um and then i would probably slot this one in there too as uh, if i were to if i were to if you were to push me for another one i would slot this in just because of the combination of different different lures the vampire lore and not the obvious one done in in a in a deeper way 
um and just the story itself and the period and uh, you know it's just a great story yeah and i'm very i'm very interested in the idea of the doppelganger and the doubling the double and all that kind of stuff like um like i remember like reading like gustav mayrink's novel the golem has a lot to do with the double and that the implications of the double and everything and i i, I don't know just something about that that you know you see it and and you know eta hoffman and so much of like particularly european um you know weird fiction i feel like it kind of makes sense for him to to ground this story in Europe because it's dealing with more of a European type of subject matter in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So yeah, you know, sadly, Wagner, not very prolific, man. He's got what he's got, and that's it. You know, the guy was taken from us way too young. Um, I mean, he'd still be alive right now. You know, hopefully, if he was alive, he'd be making more great fiction. You know. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, he's the same generation as like Ramsey Campbell, right? You know, like they came up around the same time, and 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 the, you know, Ramsey Campbell's still there, like right writing and putting out books, but you know, Edward Wagner, yeah, cut cut down too short. I mean, that's, that's the danger of being an alcoholic, though, right? You know. Yeah, all the party scenes in this book, I'm like, man, I bet Wagner was. This is like all firsthand experiences for him, you know, yeah. when he was living in. Yeah partying you know probably hanging out with jimmy page and stuff like that you know <laughs> yeah that's the other thing i like about the story too is the kind of occult element to it you know and i mean you got a character named mephisto you know which is which always good and and then you have like yeah i thought it was funny too and he has the part just to put a nail uh you know nail on in a in the coffin of uh yeah the the title coming from rock or picture show is the part where is the people from a from a production of Rocky Horror Picture Show at the party in the Coke room, like you know what I mean, like singing songs. You um, <laughs> do you ever get into that, like going to those midnight shows? You ever you ever check that out in the theater or anything? No, I never actually been to one of those midnight showings. Yeah, I mean, I went to one once, like, uh, but not like in the heyday of it. You know what I mean? It's um, yeah, it's fun. You know, it's it was a big thing when I was a kid. Uh, you know, in the eighties, it was like I knew some people who were like obsessive with it and um like there was some place in connecticut that they had like a regular um saturday night you know thing midnight showing of that but uh it was never really my cup of tea then years later i went with some friends um when i was living in boston and uh definitely cool you know but it's just interesting the music's cool it brought us it gave us tim curry you know one of the best you know yeah susan sarandon I mean, is in it you know it's, it's pretty pretty cool yeah i mean the movie's not too bad i mean i remember i saw the movie when i was pretty young the first time like and i totally did not get a lot of it you know i was probably yeah. like i don't know i don't know some seven or eight even like i was pretty young the first time i saw the movie when it was fine because i really didn't get the whole like gay subtext or anything like you know i didn't get the sexual side but i just was like oh look like you know it's like kind of kind of goofy horror you know type of thing and then like later on i was like i you know you see it like as a teenager i was like oh <laughs> was now, like, now it makes a little more sense <laughs> yeah i was like i get it now but yeah i mean i like some of the music in it i love tim curry you know and the confidence he has in those heels you know like oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, low. see i love that that nice i'm a sweet transvestite song i think it's funny <laughs> loaf is in it too yeah, you got meatloaf and uh, 
yeah, it's a pretty fun movie. I mean, it's not my favorite movie. Like, you know, I wouldn't go to see it every Saturday like some people do. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, a lot of the, the kids that I knew that were into it were like these kind of like super theatrical, like, you know, people involved like in the punk scene, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, it's just, um, it just, it was, it was cool. I, you know, I, it just wasn't one of my interests, you know, frankly. Yeah. And it's interesting though that, that, Obviously, Carl Edward Wagner was a big fan of it because, I mean, he named several of the stories that we've read off of uh, lyrics from that movie, you know, so or that, that play. So it's kind of kind of interesting. I, I I wouldn't have pegged him for being a huge Rocky Horror Picture fan. You know what I mean? No, not at all. Not at all. You know, interesting guy. If you think about it, he used to be, uh, you know, a, was he a psychiatrist at one point. That's what he, he went to school for that. He went to school for um, psychiatry, then turned to writing. Yeah. Turned into you know to writing. He's like a gun, like a guy, a gun enthusiast. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know he knows a lot. Obviously, I mean, if you go back to twenty two twenty Swift, he knows all about guns. You know, and and, and into Rocky Horror. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Like when you look at a picture of him, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy you'd be like so into Rocky Horror. You know, like I could see him being a gun guy and stuff, but you know. <laughs> yeah, but then again, there's a there's a cool photograph of him where he's wearing a Christian Death T-shirt too. That's true, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, at least... I don't know, interesting guy, man. I wish I knew more about him. There's, there's that um documentary about him, too, that's out there, The, the Last Wolf. I, I bought that on Vimeo. It's actually really cool. Yeah, I still need to watch that. I keep forgetting that. I need to get on Vimeo and watch it, too. But, yeah, I mean, he's, he just seems like a really interesting guy, and he obviously knows a lot about all that kind of weird subcultures in the, in the 70s and 80s. I mean, he puts it into a lot of his work, you know, like, and... Uh, I like how he grounds certain things like you know like when we read like um, when the summer ends he's grounding what you're that, that story set in because he's talking about the Fleetwood Mac rumors album you know what I mean yep. in the story so he's kind of like grounding I like how he uses those types of things and even with this story he really grounds it in that period like if this was a movie it would definitely be I'd like to I would like to see it done in that kind of 80s style like the hunger or something you know like imagine that that party scene done right, you know, like real sleazy 80s style, you know, like. Yeah, it's, it'd be cool if like Abel Ferrara made this film, you know, like if he had a chance of making this movie, because it seems this seems like his kind of movie, Abel Ferrara, you know what I mean? Like the yeah. guy did like yeah. and all that, because there's like a lot. This could go real sleazy with all the shower scenes and the, you know neck biting and all that sort of stuff and have you seen um the the addiction uh ferrara's uh vampire film i haven't seen that yet but it's on my list to watch because i know it's on shutter yeah so yeah. good so good yeah, yeah. It, excellent that's why that's what he he comes to mind when i when i was reading this is a, who, who who would be the perfect guy to make this new movie yeah i would agree yeah i mean from other movies i've seen from him and i need to do a double feature of like the addiction and the habit like sometime because those seem to go together really well you know from what i've heard wait with the habit is that the larry fessenden one or um yeah the, the i think it's larry fessenden horror movie uh vampire movie that one that one is so like i get so nostalgic when i watch that um i have i have like a collection of fessenden's uh you know he has like you know the uh the last uh winters on there and um I got it because the habit was on there and man, it's like the New York city, like in the nineties, man, it's just like, you know, it's completely different now, but 
but they it's it's so excellent that he captured that those years like in, in that movie and and it's like an interesting really cool like like horror film but it's also this kind of time capsule of like a time and a place that doesn't exist anymore and i love when films do that i'm sure some people feel that you know taxi driver might be that for them when they look at this i mean i wasn't you know hanging out in new york city in the 70s for sure you know but 90s new york city is really captured well in, in that fessenden movie right kind of like i feel like it seems like a lot of abel ferrara stuff captures uh new york in the 80s and yeah even early 90s because then uh king of new york come out in like early 90s yeah that's that's like yeah that's that's another one of my favorites by him and uh but yeah, you know the driller killer man the driller it started with the driller killer for me that was something renting on vhs as parties when i was like in high school and uh me and like you know like three of my my three friends you know, we were we were <laughs> renting movies and and i was like the driller killer man we got to see this this sounds this is like sounds terrifying you know and it's like once again as soon as you put it on there's this 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 uh text comes up and it's like List this movie is to be listened to at maximum volume or something like that. Right. So right away, I'm like, oh, this guy knows what's up, man. And there's like a punk rock band in the movie. And it's just the whole movie is just like so punk to me, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's the type of vibe that you need to have to do this story. Like this story needs, you know, the kind of London version of, you know, Abel Ferrara going to London doing his thing there. You know what I mean? Like sleazy rock and roll, you know, punk type of feeling to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or even Fessenden. I could see Fessenden making this film, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You just need somebody who's not afraid to like go there, you know, like to have like the, the sleazy shower scenes and have like the uh the party has to be fucking ridiculous of like people, you know, half naked women run- walking around and all that kind of stuff, you know what I mean? I mentioned a shower scene in the driller killer, there's uh you know, Ferrara's film. There's a there's a shower scene that has no relevance to the story at all. It's like <laughs> your your plot's going along, then it cuts to these two women in a sh- taking a shower together, and then it cuts away, and then the, he just put it in there just to have. It. I thought that's was like like brilliant, you know, in a lot of ways. <laughs> great. We got these we got these two actresses that are cool being naked together in, in a shower. Let's do let's do it. You know, we'll cut it in. You know. Yeah, it's that kind of kind of thinking that you had back then with like people like him or Roger Corman or whatever. They're like, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense, you gotta have some some naked women here and there, or, you know, whatever. You know, it's like just to just to get that in. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what? It's it's such a like. I know that I know that we've turned people on to, to Wagner. I've I've seen you know I'm sure you have too. Like in your various social media streams and feeds you know and messaging people have definitely listened to this podcast and have gone out and sought this book i know for a fact yeah so you guys out there keep sharing this with your friends we got we got to resurrect all the rest of his catalog somehow maybe valencourt will put out some cane you know reissues or whatever but because all that stuff is not available anymore, man. In print, in heart, in 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 paper copies, you have to go on uh, Kindle to get the Kane stories, and they have like the worst artwork ever for those uh, for the material that's on on Kindle. It's like the worst covers you can imagine. Yeah, they they look like a four four year old room kind of. They're horrible. <laughs> They're horrible. 
And and the original, I mean, I, I have I have the the novels as paperbacks that I got in the in the 80s. And they all have like Frank Frazetta covers. They're like insanely cool. Yeah. And um so I mean that we need to have a, that kind of treatment. You know, we need to have these stories out there for the public to read and and with that level of care into making these books real, you know, instead of just like some really whack like you know artwork that they have on Kindle. Yeah, it would be really awesome if Valencourt does, you know, because I mean they put their their books are really good quality and they put a lot of work in the typesetting and the paper, for, you know, selection and all kind of stuff, you know. So it's like it'd be nice to have a full set of everything Wagner's done through them, you know. So let's hope. I mean, I'm sure part of it they're probably putting out in a lonely place because it's a you know one of his core story collections has like the core stories, and I would imagine that they're probably going to see how well it does. And then if it does well, probably start working on the rest of their work, his work, I'd imagine. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've reached out to those guys to try to like, I, cause I know they, they like all the stuff when we post these, you know, they, they like these, um, you know, they'll repost a lot of the stuff when we do these episodes of darkness weaves. Um, I, I think my mess, I can't find the guy, the guy to talk to, cause I'd love to get someone from Valencourt on the podcast to talk about all this stuff and you know the rest of the great stuff they put out i mean they put out that the michael shea uh uh reissue just came out like that you know they republished um polyphemus that just came out um my copy just arrived in the mail the other day um tons of cool stuff and it's cool genre fiction aside besides horror they do like crime stuff too yeah yeah it seems like they're pretty they're focused on this genre fiction particularly crime and and horror seem to be the two big things but yeah i mean they do so much cool i love the paperbacks from hell We've mentioned that before and yeah it's all the great stuff i mean if you it'd be you know like they're definitely a, a publisher to keep up on and see what they're publishing and get the stuff and also take a chance and check out new stuff too you know because they put out a lot of really interesting writers you know they seem yeah so good quality control you know what i mean yeah, once again, like you mentioned, the artwork, the whole package, the paper quality, like everything is really on top of it, you know. And, and uh, like sometimes I'll just like buy. I have I have several pieces from their their catalog, and some of them, you know, obviously I bought stuff by authors I'm familiar with, like the Michael Shea thing I pre-ordered. Um, but then like I'll just go out on a limb because the description sounds cool, and I know that they do quality work, and I've never really been let down by anything I've picked up from Valancourt yeah there's a few things i plan on getting like i know there's one i think i might have sent you was like this like uh british author or something like that that his novels like i wanted to check out and yeah there's a lot of the cool stuff and i definitely pay attention to uh, to publishers who put have quality control and put thought into the actual book and the way it's bound and the paper and stuff because i just think it's important you know i like to see publishers who are actually like putting that thought into it and plus i mean they don't they don't charge an arm and leg for books either even with the quality but you know you know yeah. it's not gonna like decay and because some of the um print on demand services and stuff like you get from like amazon you know it's great that people can publish and whatever but some of those editions are not well made you know they they fall apart you know they're made on paper that yellows and you know what i mean like so it's good to see a publisher actually take the time to actually print stuff properly you know yeah definitely yeah they're, they're one of the ones that are on my radar you know i pretty much regularly check out their their site and also uh cheer up press the the publishing arm of cadabra 
Um, they've got some cool quality stuff out too. You know, the Legati pieces that they've been publishing in a, yeah. you know, Noctuary was out of print for a long time. So now it's available, you know? Yeah. Noctuary was literally a $400, $300 book like Wagner stuff. And yeah, I mean, I was so excited to finally get my copy like this week. <laughs> I yeah. was like, it's fucking finally here. So, you know, it's awesome to like book through and be like, okay, now I can finally read the Legati stuff that has been out of print and I haven't been able to read, you know? Absolutely. When, um, when I went to Nightlands Festival, I picked up a um, print of the artwork. Paul Romano did the artwork for that. Yeah, so so I, have, I, haven't, I haven't framed it yet, but it's uh, it's definitely in my stack of stuff to be framed. Yeah, I think he sent me a picture that looks like beautiful, beautiful print. Dude, so good. Trying to get Romano on the uh, podcast too. He's um, you know, guy I've known him for many years. Uh, very busy all the time. Um, he's got like some really cool stuff in the works. And when he's ready to share that with the public, he's going to come on the podcast and talk about it. Awesome. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be nice if Chiraptera maybe even did Ligotti editions too, but you know, or not Ligotti, I mean, uh, Wagner editions, you know, like, but. You know, but it's, it's funny because, you know, I know at this stage of the game, I know Jonathan and Chris really well. And, um, you know, neither one, no one knows anything about Carlo Wagner at, at, at that, uh, with those guys. I keep trying to push it on them. Yeah, they got to you know? get into it. I mean, people would love to have a uh, uh, a recording of sticks. You know what I mean? That's the story. That that would be the story for them to do. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, next time I see or I talk to those guys, um, so I, I just saw Chris at our show last weekend. He came out, and uh, we played in New York. Oh, cool. And, um, yeah, we were talking all, for a long time about just, you know, the Legati book and all this stuff. And, and I kept that. I go, dude, you got to check out Wagner, you know, and okay. um, it's right up your alley. You guys need to check, check out the, uh, in a lonely place. And, you know, it, it'll it fits right in with all the stuff you're into. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think people would really like that, you know, the same type of people who are into getting all those other, other, you know, vinyls are going to be into getting sticks and get a cool artist to kind of, do something a play on the, the original artwork from whispers you know would be really cool oh yeah that's the other thing too man it's jonathan is influenced by that 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 guy the guy i can't remember his name man i bought a, a book of his um yeah the artist's name is uh lee brown coy and um lee brown coy is a huge influence on jonathan and his artwork looks very much like his. And, you know, I've been trying to, like, get those guys hip to Carl Edward Wagner and specifically the short story Sticks. So i got to work harder on that. Yeah, I think they'll definitely be into it, you know. <laughs> yeah. It'd be, and and then if, you, if it happens, then you can look, get the copy and the record and know that you're part of that happening. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. You know, that that that's the idea, you know, that somehow – like I'm kind of like the uh, you know they're they're hype man in a lot of ways you know what I mean it's like <laughs> I always like help them like promote things like when when they have events coming up because they had that that thing in Philly a couple weeks ago haunts it was like October first you know yeah, and they you invited had them on me on the out. podcast yeah and then you know I had Chris on for that and you know I always try to help somehow in promoting because I I more I believe so much in what Cadaver is doing and. I mean, if anyone out there likes this stuff, like weird fiction, or like you like Thomas Ligotti, you like Lovecraft, you like Arthur Mackin, you like any of that stuff, 
you know, and, and even more traditional horror because they have tons of film scores too available. But the combination of the narration with the, with the score, the musical score is like so cool. And the packaging, the artwork on these records, amazing. And to watch it perform live is is really, really special, man. And that thing I went to in uh, Philly, I was only able to make uh, the second day because the first day was the Night of Cannibal Corpse. But the first, the second day, they're recording a live album of the narrators with a live accompaniment. And it was being recorded live. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I was in the room while they were recording all this stuff. And it was just really cool, you know. Yeah, I mean it's it's cool that they're doing that. I mean, I mean it's, I can just imagine. I mean how uh, it's got to be got to have a little bit of nervousness going into that, like not wanting to fuck up the reading. You know what I mean? Like, well, <laughs> well, no, that's, that's, that's actually the real interesting thing is because because it was live, there was actually they would they would redo some of the stuff on the spot, which made it even cooler in some ways. You know, okay. it's like that. The guy recording it was like producing it. He's like, oh, can you hit that line again or whatever? And the guy will reread it. Like they'll redo the score. And Chris was doing the score and he's like just kind of improvising the whole thing. It just really, really fucking cool, man. It was a good, good night, you know, to, or afternoon or whatever of, of cool fiction and, and music, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's really, it's really impressive what they're doing though. I mean, the fact that he's like one guy sitting there with his keyboard, like making these awesome like soundtracks, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, John Paget reads all the Ligotti stuff, and Paget's like the perfect guy with his voice and just his understanding of the material and his uh, connection with Thomas Ligotti. You know, and you know, for anyone who, who doesn't know who I'm talking about, just go back a few episodes, and I had John Paget on 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 the show on Everything Went Black, and pretty much told you all about the stuff yeah. we're talking about. <laughs> and, I, and I have the uh, the audiobook on Audible that he did of. Songs of Dead Dreamer, Grim Scribe, which is really great. It's, he does a really good job of reading the stories, so I can always recommend that to people if you want to, to listen to some Mogadi. It's an awesome audiobook, you know? Yeah, that's the only way to fly is with Paget reading it. So. Yeah, I don't think there's any others, so. <laughs> well, that that's, um, that's it for this uh, first uh, body of work of Carl Edward Wagner that we're going to, we're going to cover. And, you know, next up, we're going to start getting into the Kane stories. And um, so let me ask you, uh, Carl, how did you get, how did you get become aware of the Kane, that character? Like when, um, when did you first hear about Kane? I mean, really, I, I mean, I didn't really know about Kane until more recently, actually. So like Wagner as a whole is something I came, I became aware of Wagner a few years ago because, um, I kind of heard the like I heard of sticks and then in particular um uh I think it would have been um I matter you know I remember reading about him being mentioned like in the Robert E Howard introductions for those Del Rays they mentioned him and the work he did but it wasn't really um didn't really register and I think when I, I the H.U. Lovecraft literary podcast they covered sticks yeah. listening to that was kind of what got me interested in him but of course it's like literally impossible to find any of his stuff so you know I, I got collections that had like sticks and like rivers and night dreaming so i mean that was literally a few years ago so i didn't really find out about kane until probably more recently because i i think probably until you started telling me about him really so that's that's kind yeah. of my introduction to kane was you telling me about him <laughs> no one no one that you're a conan 
you like you like Conan and Elric and Kane in some ways is kind of like an aggregate of both of those characters. Yeah, exactly. And I, so far, I've, I, there was a guy on YouTube who re- did a few readings of Kane's stories. So that's so far like my what I've heard from of Kane so far. So it's kind of like now, I'll, you know, I'm going to get the uh, Kindle edition and download on my phone, read on my phone. So or my computer either way. But so that's going to yeah. be getting into all of the Kane through that way, you know, so. But from, yeah, from like my reading, the few things that I've heard of his, like he definitely seems like somewhere in between Elric and, and Conan, you know? Yeah, I remember the first two books, the novels I got into when I was a kid, uh, there was a place called the Book and Record Store. That was literally the name of it when I was growing up in Carmel, New York. And they had like, that's where I found about the Ramones, you know, Motorhead, like, sabbath they had all they had all these great records like hard rock albums and metal records and punk records and then they had the, the most killer fantasy and horror section too and at the time i was like knee deep in conan and elric and all the michael moorcock characters and um and then i saw the cover for bloodstone and um death death angel's shadow and it had that incredible Frank Frazetta uh, artwork on it. And that's what hooked me in. And of course, like after reading it, I was like, oh, this is great. And But at the time, I wasn't able to get the short stories. I didn't read the short stories until much, much later in my life, you know, when I started seeing these things appear. And uh, But yeah, the, the novels, Bloodstone, Death Angel Shadow, and uh, whatever the name of the other one was, those are the things I read originally, then kind of left it, let it alone for a while. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of wish I knew about Wagner before because I probably could have found, you know, particularly back in the 90s, early 2000s, it probably was a lot easier to find all of the trade paperbacks, you know, or the paperbacks that, uh, you know, the little paperbacks at, at, at stores, you know what I mean? It used used bookstores. Now, like so many of those have closed in this in Denver. And, but I've been meaning to go down and hit some of the one, the like two or three that are still open and see if I can get lucky and maybe find some Kane novels, because I'm sure that I've seen them, you know what I mean, in the past and didn't really know who Carl Wagner is or Kane, you know what I mean? But I I know I've seen his name and just those books, but I never picked them up, you know what I mean? Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And um, yeah, stay tuned for Kane. That's up next. Yep. Next next month will be on, uh, on Solonox and it'll be the first Kane story, so it'll be... I think that's the one where they're at the end, right? That's the first game story, I think. So, yeah, start, start, take it from the top stories. Yeah. So, hopefully, uh, yeah, people stick with us and, uh, you know, hopefully the cane stories eventually get put in print too. But <laughs> hopefully they make a movie, man. That would, Kane would be the greatest character to make like a series out of, you know? Yeah. That'd be really cool to do like a, yeah, like a, a mini series, kind of like how they did like The Witcher and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, or or first or or the original uh, Game of Thrones because there's like tons of violence and sex and all those stories. So it, it would have to be like like a non PC like totally like legit version of Kane. It could he, Kane couldn't be like sensitive or anything. You know what I mean? Because he's kind of a scumbag too. Yeah, yeah. You know that's one thing about like uh, about stuff today that like that's why like I, the Rings of Power stuff was nonsense because it's like you can't do this stuff and be politically correct. You know what I mean? Like it's gotta oh, no. be the way it is. And, you know, 
So it's like, if you're going to make it, make it right. Don't, it's like, it's like with Conan, like I don't really want them to make any more Conan movies because I feel like now is not the right environment to make Conan because they're going to make it PC or something, do something stupid. You know what I mean? So it's like, I'll just not do that until people change, stop doing that. You know what I mean? <laughs> And how, like, if you, you know, especially you read, you know, these stories were written like almost a hundred years ago, you know what I mean? So it's like the lens of the world back then versus now. And Robert E. Howard was definitely a man of his time, you know what I mean? And it's like just the incense, so certain insensitivities that he had in his writing just would not fly with a lot of people these days. Yeah. And I mean, like Wagner is definitely a bit more of our time, but at the same time, he's not afraid to to go hard with the violence and the kind of and the sleaze. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, like we were saying earlier, like if if this story that we covered tonight was going to be a uh, a movie, it'd have to be an April Ferrara type movie. It wouldn't can't be like some fucking like, you know, watered down, you know, no. like uh, what do you call it? like watered down PC thing? You know what I mean? <laughs> Guys, thanks for listening. And Carl, I'll talk to you later. Take care, awesome, man. Dude. You too.